only when we see that the system endangers us too in a different way and not as directly but us too that we are going to actually stay in the fight like our lives depend on it because they do you're listening to the mental health download from the nonprofit mental health association oklahoma i'm matt gleason on today's episode we are so thrilled that tim wise is our guest tim will be a keynote speaker during mental health association oklahoma's virtual zero mental health symposium coming up september 30th through october 2nd tim is among the most prominent anti-racist writers and educators in the united states he's also the host of the new podcast speak out with tim wise in addition, Tim is the author of eight books, including his forthcoming Dispatches from the Race War. And we asked Mark Davis, the association's chief programs officer, who plays such a pivotal role in planning the Zero Mental Health Symposium, to interview Tim today because, honestly, it was Mark's idea to bring Tim to the symposium. All right, real quick, you can register for the Zero Mental Health Symposium at zerosymposium.org. All right, let's get to the conversation. The mental health download starts now. Tim, welcome. Welcome so much to the Mental Health Association's Mental Health Download. We are truly thrilled and excited uh, that you're going to be one of our keynote speakers at the symposium this year, our Zero Mental Health Symposium. I believe it's our 26th year hosting this event. This year's theme and, and title is Healing from Historical Trauma. And so as you can imagine, there's a lot packed in there. We're going to be addressing issues around the, the Holocaust, the Trail of Tears, trauma in and of itself, present-day trauma, the trauma that we're going through as related to COVID-19, the civil unrest, systemic racism issues, structural racism. When we were talking about people to speak at our symposium this coming year, your name was the, one of the first names, Tim, that came out of my mouth. I've been kind of following you and, and, and reading your stuff for about 10 years now. I'm a licensed clinician myself and chief programs officer here at the agency. And so I try to keep my ear close to people who are, are saying impactful things about race relations and advancing the culture for the better. And you're definitely one of those guys that are is at the top of my list. So we're very thrilled to have you speaking. Thank you. I'm glad to be able to do it. If you would, Tim, share a little bit about your journey to become active in the anti-racism work that you do. Okay. Well, you know, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I live again now and have for the last 24 years, I guess. And, you know, growing up in the South, I, at a time in the, in the seventies, I was born in 1968. So a child of the seventies in the, in the early eighties. And I was, uh, you know, a child of of integration in the sense that it really wasn't until I started school uh, in around 1974 that the Nashville public school system had really been uh, truly integrated. It was, it was 20 years after Brown v. Board before we really got around to doing it. And you know, it was hugely important, I think, for those of us who came up at that time and graduated in the mid-80s to you know, have have experienced a school system in transition, a community in transition. And there was a lot of shakeout happening in Nashville at that time, you know, with white families running to the suburbs who wanted to get away from, from public schools, the opening of a lot of, you know, quote unquote, Christian academies at that moment on the part of people who suddenly decided they needed a religiously based education. They hadn't needed one, apparently, when 
the schools could be all white. But as soon as uh, black folks could go there, then all of a sudden they decided they had to have church, you know, five days a week uh, through the week as well. And, you know, my parents were very deliberate in wanting for me something that they had not had growing up also in Nashville and attending schools here, which was a, a truly integrated school experience. And my mother made a decision even before that to send me to preschool as parents do, but she made the decision to send me to preschool at Tennessee State University, which is a historically black college in North Nashville on the other side of town from where I lived. And she made that decision, you know, 1972, I'm three and a half years old or whatever it was, and made that decision very deliberately. So as to socialize me in an environment where I wouldn't always be the norm, she thought that would be valuable. And she also did it to, you know, piss off her parents. So I don't want to give her too much credit. <laughs> there was an awareness on her part, right, that, that it would be valuable for me going into an integrated school system where the, the school would be, you know, probably about 70, 30 white, but it would still be well integrated that to be in an environment where I was not the norm would be a really good experience. And it was. And, and what I think it did for me was a couple of things. I mean, number one, it socialized me to not always expect myself to be the norm so that I was more comfortable in spaces that weren't, you know, you know, overwhelmingly white. But also what it did is, is, you know, it socialized me around a peer group of color, which meant that when I got into first grade, second grade on middle school, high school, and all through my life, if, you know, when I was young, I was able to see the differential treatment that I was receiving as opposed to the treatment black folks were receiving because I'd had these friendships. I'd had these close associations. I felt connected to those children in preschool. And so then as you get older and you start to see people that you associate with and people who are your friends and people you identify with treated differently, you notice it in a way that you probably wouldn't if you'd gone to preschool in a mostly white place, been around mostly white kids. It's not that you would be a horrible racist child just because of that. It's just you wouldn't even notice stuff like racial separation. You wouldn't even notice when the black kids were being treated differently and sent to the office, even though the white kids were acting up. You wouldn't notice when the black kids were on one side of the room doing remedial level work and the white kids are on the other side doing advanced level work because that wouldn't really you know, conjure any kind of weirdness for you. Whereas for me, when I'm seeing that in first grade, second grade, fifth grade and on, it's like, wait a minute, why am I over here and my friends are over there? Like, why are we being separated within this school that we share? That doesn't make sense to me. So, so it socialized me to sort of see some things. And it also subordinated me to black authority because the women that ran the program at Tennessee State uh, were mostly African-American women. So having black women be the authority figures in your life when you're white and you're four and it's the early 1970s is sort of a big deal because it means that you're learning to trust the authority of black people and particularly black women so that, you know, fast forward 22 years later, whatever it is, 21 years later, and I'm working in New Orleans after college where I went to school at, at Tulane. Um, I got out and I was doing community organizing work. And as a community organizer in low-income communities of color, mostly public housing communities, the women who were sort of the civic leaders in those spaces were mostly black women. And so when those women are telling me, hey, this is what's up, right? This is what's happening in our community. This is the stuff that we're up against. I go back to that early socialization that says, oh my God, what are we gonna do about that? Rather than 
what I think most white folks, frankly, would say, which is, are you sure, right? Because we're, we're used to challenging black authority. We're used to not trusting black authority. We're used to thinking that black people are exaggerating a problem. But I was trained, you know, at four years old to trust black authority. So I'm able to hear black folks when they talk about that in a way that maybe I wouldn't have been. So I think all of that, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but those are the cornerstone pieces that allowed me as I then grew up and had mentors, mostly black mentors in the city of New Orleans, folks at the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, for instance, um, and others who really sort of helped to guide me and to, and to recognize the way that white supremacy was operating in a systemic way in, in my life and in the life of the country. And I think the only reason that I was really in a position to hear that in the way that I was as early as I was, was in large part because of my upbringing. One of the first times I actually heard you speak, it really, I was, I was thoroughly excited and pleased and, and also a little taken back in a good way because I'm like, wow, you know, this, you know, this white guy is speaking to the issues of white supremacy, white privilege. And it appears, again, from my seat, I said, it appears that he's getting this, these, you know, these very deep rooted systemic racial constructs. He, he's getting these concepts across to the people that actually I feel like needed to hear them. And that's predominantly white folks. Has that been your experience or has it been a constant kind well, of struggle and battle? I mean, I certainly think it helps, obviously, when anyone who's white, you know, presents this information to other white people, obviously it tends to it tends to land maybe a little easier, maybe a lot easier, just because of white privilege and and because white folks will take it from other white folks in ways they won't perhaps from black and brown folks, which is a huge problem that ultimately we've got to get over and and be able to hear it from whoever is speaking it when it's truth. Uh, I think the same is true for, for sexism. I think men who challenge other men around their sexism find that they're more effective sometimes than when women say the very same thing because we've been led to, you know, sort of discount the opinions of, of women as women, putting race completely to the side for a second, but then doubly so for black and brown women. So I, I, there's no doubt that, that what you're, what you're referencing is true. I also think though, that there's a, a piece that's, you know, there are a lot of white folks who, who do not a lot, but there are some white folks who do the work and I think do it effectively, but sometimes run up into the, into the obstacle with people of coming from a really sort of academic-y kind of place, you know, a very scholarly kind of place. And there's a, there's a place for that. I learned a lot from, and have learned a lot from academic race scholars um, mm -hmm. about how to conceptualize certain things. But I do think that for me, what I have found has been especially helpful for me, and I'm not taking any credit for this. This is just about the the, the life that I, the path that I was put on again by my parents. So this is all just luck on my part. I was very fortunate to be put in situations where I got to actually learn about these concepts based on personal experience and relationship with people, not just because I took a really great critical race theory class. You know, like I do know a lot of white folks who have come to their anti-racism through their politics and through their academic training and through their graduate school level education and because of all the books they've read. Well, I've read those books too and I've taken some of those classes and I certainly have politics that connect with my anti-racism, but I did not, I, I do not come to my anti-racism through a radical political activist lens. 
I come to my radical activist political ideology through anti-racism. In other words, the anti-racism stuff, the seeds of that were planted long before I ever thought about politics or ideology, uh, let alone called myself radical politically, let alone took a college class. It was because of those experiences. It, 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 was, it was playing on a baseball team at you know the age of 10 that was all black kids except for me and like two other white guys and going out to a, a ball field, you know, 25 minutes outside of Nashville to play a scrimmage game against a rural team and having that team refuse to play us because we were mostly black. And then as we, as we turned to leave, you know, essentially surrounding our car and threatening to, you know, bash our, our skulls in with baseball bats, with aluminum baseball bats, um, and calling the black kids racial slurs and calling the three of us who were white, you know, you know what they call. And, and so, you know, that's, that's how I come to, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't about like, oh, look at this awesome radical thinker whose work I, you know, digested. It was about lived experience. It was about watching this institutional mistreatment of people to whom I was connected. And I think sometimes, you know, when you share stories like that, it hits with people as well because they don't feel they're being talked down to by some, you know, philosophy professor or right. whatever. You know, it's just somebody who's recounting their life. You know, yeah. There's uh, no no substitute for for living that and that experience that you went through. You know, and and that experience that many persons of color and African Americans go through every day. So in your in your book, this kind of is a great segue uh, into my next question. And in your book, white white like me, you talk a little bit about you know your identity as a Jewish person, but still being accepted as as, as white by our society. Can you talk a, a little more about that and the connections you you see between anti-Semitism and white supremacy? So you know it's interesting growing up in the South as a Jew is obviously very different than growing up in certain other parts of the country. I think if I'd grown up in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, which are the three largest Jewish communities in the United States, that I would have had a very different experience. My, my college roommates freshman year were Jewish guys and their lives were totally different. One was from the North Shore of Chicago, the other was from Long Island. I think growing up in the South, I got used to a very uh, deeply embedded cultural anti-Semitism that was not always overtly hostile, though sometimes it was. The Klan tried to bomb my temple in 1981 when I was 13, and they were foiled in that at the last minute because one of the people who was, I guess, producing the bomb, which turned out to be a fake, was actually an FBI informant or whatever. But so they they you know stopped the plot. But but that kind of anti-Semitism wasn't the big problem for me growing up. The big problem was just the sort of persistent evangelical Christianity that was you know, they didn't consider itself anti-Semitic when they told me I was going to hell. You know, they never do. Uh, they never think it's anti-Semitic when they tell you that you are dead in the eyes of God because you don't accept Jesus as your personal savior. But, you know, to me, the difference between Hitler and somebody who says that is pretty minimal because in the case of Hitler and in the case of the person who wants me to convert, the goal is the same, no more Jews. And so I grew up with a sense that that was what anti-Semitism looked like. And I went through a period where I, you know, when I was like in fifth grade, I remember going through this period where I was like outwardly sort of super Jewy. Like I just decided I would wear a Star of David, even though I, you know, I was a reformed Jew. Like what, I mean, reformed Jews 
we barely practice the religion, to be perfectly honest with you, nine times out of 10. It's pretty much a secular and philosophical kind of Judaism as opposed to a deeply religious one, to be honest. And I know there are some Reformed Jews who will hear that and go, that's not true at my temple. All right, whatever. I'm just saying generally what I know to be true. But I went through this period where I was just like, everything was about me being Jewish. And it was partly because I was going to public schools where we were being evangelized all the time. I mean, they, they couldn't make us pray since 1962, but they, but it's not for lack of trying. You know, they tried. And so I think, and, and I would have teachers. I mean, when I say people would tell me that I was going to go to hell, I don't mean like random street preachers. I mean, fifth period English teachers. I mean, the librarian in my middle school. I mean, the sociology teacher at my high, at my high school, who was also the basketball coach. I, you know, I'm talking about people in positions of authority who would just regularly say this stuff like it was nothing because, well, that's my faith and I have to share my faith with you. Well, you don't have to, you chose to, and you're in a public school. And so when you do that, try it again and we'll see if you're employed next semester. How about that? And I got to a point where I would challenge it that way in middle school. I remember, you know, we were all brought into the auditorium and we were forced. I mean, it wasn't an optional event. During the day, we were required to listen to this guy from Young Life, which is a Christian youth organization, perfectly fine organization if you're a Christian youth, not so helpful for those who are not. And we were all sort of required to go in and hear him testify about his personal relationship with Jesus. Well, I'm sitting there, you know, in the 15th row or whatever, looking around at the other seven Jewish kids in the school. And I'm like, what the hell are we going to, you know, like, what are we going to do? We're sitting here. Why are we sitting here? And they were all just sort of shrugging. And I'm like, all right, that's it. And I get up to leave because I had had parents who very early on had told me, don't let them pray, don't make you pray and don't let them spank you. Those were the two things that my parents told me, which I should point out have a lot to do with white privilege too. And a lot to do with feeling entitled. Like I was being told when I was five years old, sent to first grade, six years old, you will stand up to authority. I don't know too many black parents who probably felt they could tell their kids that, but my white parents could, they were like, we will back you up. We will find you a lawyer. We, you know, how many, how many six-year-old black kids are being told by their parents, don't let the teachers mess with you. And if you do, we'll take them out. Like that was what my parents were instilling in me. So I walked out of the middle school assembly and the principal cornered me in the hall, asked me where I was going. I said, I was going to call my lawyer. He said, you're 11. I said, well, yeah. He said, you don't have a lawyer. I said, oh yeah, I do. Well, I didn't, but I, I could act really well and, and pretend. And he apologized and it never happened again. Now, here's where I think this connects with racism. So on the one hand, I think those kinds of experiences heighten my sensitivity to the mistreatment that my black friends and, and colleagues and teammates and others were experiencing. However, let me also point out the piece that I was just talking about, the privilege piece. I also knew that because of my whiteness, in, in, even though it wasn't spoken, it's not like I, I said to myself, well, I'm catching hell as a Jew, but as a white person, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to threaten to sue him. No, I just, I just had this innate sense that mm -hmm. I had the right to challenge authority, that you weren't going to mess with me by God and my, and my parents were going to have my back. And they, you know, and, and no doubt there were black parents who did not like uh, their kids being subjected to corporal punishment, which was and is still legal all throughout the South, right? And, and, but they didn't always feel that they could write that note and, and have it in the principal's office that said, you're not to touch my child. Like, I, you know, I don't think they wanted the principal to, to spank their child, but sometimes they felt they didn't have the power to say no to that. And certainly they didn't, I don't think that the black kids felt they had the power to walk out of assemblies that offended them.
because God knows there would have been plenty of them, I'm sure. There would have been plenty of history lessons that offended them. There would have been plenty of all kinds of stuff that would have offended them. But, you know, but, but, but there's a privilege that I had as a white person in just assuming that I could speak out. So yeah, it made me more sensitive to the mistreatment because I was also catching hell in this other area, but I still had this advantage that they didn't have. It was still different. And I came to understand that I think because I did play on these, on these ball teams, basketball and baseball that were mostly black kids, like all my friends that I went to temple with, they all played ball in the JCC league, the Jewish community center league. And I played in the Y league. Like I played in the YMCA league with the black kids. And and I just knew that things were different. Like I just knew that the way we reviewed was different, that the whole experience was different. And so I never fell into that trap that I think sometimes white Jewish folks do, which is allowing our experiences with anti-Semitism to make ourselves, make to cause us to center our own pain and not see the pain of others. Because I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen where white Jewish folks will be like, you know, we'll be in the middle of a conversation about enslavement or segregation or police brutality or systemic racism, and we'll switch the conversation to our own suffering, right? Whether it's the Holocaust, whether it's modern anti-Semitism. And, you know, I know all about that. I've experienced that. I've been threatened by Nazis. I get threatened by Nazis all the time. I've, you know, had to take security measures at my home because they released our home phone number, our address. They were threatening my entire family, my children. So I'm very familiar. And they were all doing it on the basis of me being Jewish. Like it was all about killing this Jew and his family. So I'm very, very aware of what anti-Semitism looks like. But what I am concerned about is how we sometimes pivot to that, not to draw the connections, not to say, hey, let's talk about the parallels here and the similarities and the connections and the fact that we have a common enemy, but instead we use it sometimes as a deflection technique to get out of talking about systemic racism, just as I think sometimes white women use sexism, not because it's a legitimate issue and and one that connects with racism, but as a way that they don't have to own their whiteness. Just as I think working class white people sometimes talk about their their economic troubles as children are growing up as a way not to talk about whiteness. Like Mm -hmm. all of those issues are legit, anti-Semitism, classism, patriarchy, all of it, and they're all connected but I think sometimes we use them to compete with one another in an oppression Olympics rather than talking about how they intersect, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to borrow that oppression Olympics from you, but that, that makes uh, a lot of sense. We can definitely uh, change the angle of the conversation to focus on those other things that they may be dealing with. Let's shift to uh, a topic that's been in the news for several, several weeks that's uh, caused a major movement that needed to take place. This is regarding George Floyd's unfortunate and tragic death. Since since that has occurred, Tim, how has that how has that impacted your life, or what, what impact has that had for you and what you do and the message that you share? Well, I think for any of us who who are involved in anti racism at an educational level of trying to raise awareness and and provoke action towards an anti racist future, it helps illuminate as does the coronavirus pandemic as well, and the disproportionate black and brown death involved with that pandemic, helps to illuminate some of the things that we've always talked about. And I think in the case of the killing of George Floyd, as well as Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, and so many others uh, over the years, 
as well as coronavirus, what we are seeing in real time is a clear demonstration of how much black life doesn't matter to certain people in this society, whether that's certain people within law enforcement, whether that's the political administration that I think soft pedals the crisis of coronavirus in part because of the people it's disproportionately affecting. I mean, I'll be honest. I think that if this illness, if 140,000 people who had died had been disproportionately white, affluent, and, you know, in their 30s and 40s, as opposed to black and brown, working class and old, and had they been mostly people who didn't have pre-existing conditions, but people who normally had been healthy, I think we would have had an entirely different reaction to the pandemic. I think we would have closed everything down. I think everybody would be wearing masks. I think nobody would be talking about opening things back up because the people that are demanding that we open things back up are the people who aren't disproportionately suffering. And if they were, they'd have, their mouths would be shut right now and they'd be hiding behind glass in their houses, worried that they were going to die. The only reason they're cavalier about it is because it ain't them. It's these right. people over here. And so, and so I think what we are seeing is the way in which a segment, not everybody by any stretch, and the movement that's up, that the uprising demonstrates it's not everybody, but, but there is a significant number of Americans who just, particularly white folks who are just don't, They just have this mentality that there's a hierarchy of human value and black and brown folks are on the bottom of that and working class and low income folks are on the bottom of that and older folks are on the bottom of that and people who are sick and have pre-existing conditions, they're on the bottom of that. It's a eugenic mentality that was created in this society to defend white supremacy. Now, the irony is it's taken down a lot of old white folks right now, too. And the irony is it's taken out a lot of a lot of middle-aged white folks who are immunocompromised or have rheumatoid arthritis or have diabetes or asthma or whatever. So the irony of this mentality is it's killing white folks as well, but it all starts with that mentality that there's a hierarchy of value, that certain lives are worth more than others, and that black and brown life is especially cheap to certain people. And so this is helping to illuminate that. Now, the hope that we have in this moment is that perhaps because of the pandemic and the fact that we're in a lockdown kind of situation, mostly still, is allowing people to see and to hear and more importantly, to feel for the first time what other people have been seeing and hearing and feeling for generations. Because I think that if we hadn't been in lockdown when George Floyd was killed, for instance, if it hadn't have been with the backdrop of COVID-19 happening, I'm not sure we see this uprising. Certainly not at the level that we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it at this level in large part because people were home, they weren't going about the daily hustle and bustle of their pre-pandemic lives, and it allowed them a certain freedom to just sit with what they were seeing, right? Whereas if we've been going about our business, it'd be just another video of another man getting killed by a cop, which we've Mm -hmm. seen. We've seen it with Tamir Rice. We saw it with John Crawford. We saw it with Eric Garner. We saw it with Alton Sterling. We saw it with Philando Castile. We've seen it, right? But but this time you you saw it and you didn't have anywhere else to go and you didn't have anything else to do, right? And so the, the hope in this moment is that out of that tragedy, And out of the tragedy of 140,000 dead from COVID, I'm sure by the time we're done with this thing, it's going to be well north of 200,000, that with maybe as many as a quarter million dead, if anything can redeem this tragedy, hopefully it will be a recognition that we got to go in a different direction because this kind of death is is the end result of a society that said certain people don't matter. And when you say that certain people don't matter, you cannot be surprised 20 years later, 50 years later, 100 years later, 300 years later, when it comes to get you. 
and and because at the end of the day they don't love you either at the end of the day they don't love you they don't love your white grandma they don't love you if you got an illness and a pre-existing condition that's why they're in court right now trying to overturn the ACA because they, they don't they don't care if you have health coverage if you have a pre-existing condition because if you got a pre-existing condition there are folks that think it's because you're weak that there's something wrong with you, that you didn't take good enough care of yourself. That's the mentality of some of these people. And so hopefully now we will have people who are white, who, who have never had to feel this vulnerable before, who have never had to actually sit there and ask, is it safe to go to the store today? Is it safe to walk around my neighborhood today? That's a question black folks already were asking, didn't need COVID to ask that question. They already asked that question. And now white folks are asking it and it's like, wow, okay, maybe now I can hear what these people have been telling me forever. And if that happens, then maybe we can come out of this thing and there will be a silver lining in the cloud. But that's the open question that we have to ask. You know, you, you said a couple of things that made me think way back to, I think, a, a lecture you did. Uh, I don't know. It could have been in 2010. But when you said they don't love you either, <laughs> you reminded me of the talk you did. And you, it was, you were referencing Hurricane Katrina, actually. Right. The, the differences between the parishes. And I think there's some similarities you could draw with, with COVID that COVID-19 is bringing to the surface some of these major racial disparities and access to, to services and, and, and lack of equality and so on and so forth. Could you mm-hmm. kind of talk more specifically about that? Some of the things that, that you have seen in your research and some of the things that are just blatantly out in the news? Well, I mean, uh, first, just to make that uh, historical connection that you that you referenced regarding Katrina, I mean, you know, here's a good example. So this is the last time that we had sort of a major sort of racial story where the racial disparity was so obvious and it captured our attention in the news. I would say Katrina is the last one that we've had uh, before this. And and what happened there, and of course, sadly, you know, the empathy lasted for about 72 hours. There were about 72 hours where we were all sort of, oh my God, can you believe this is happening in an American city? And then as soon as some folks on the far right decided they could blame black people for not getting out of town, you know, and make it about them and make it about a handful of looters, right. and really a handful statistically of looters relative to the 130,000 people or whatever it was who were trapped in the convention center and or the Superdome, then that changed the narrative altogether. The good news between 2005 when that happened and now is that we got enough cell phone footage. We know what's going on. We know, we know the fact that these protests have been overwhelmingly nonviolent. We know the fact that we've got people who are coming in who are doing most of the violence in places like Minneapolis that weren't protesters. They weren't BLM folks. These were not activists. These were just these were just knuckleheads who were coming in from mostly white communities, I should point out. Some of them far right people who were trying to discredit the movement. Some of these boogaloo boy guys that are like these far right, you know, anti-government folks that, that are not Black Lives Matter protesters. So we have enough evidence now to keep the empathy going. But back then we didn't. And what it demonstrated in 05, when you saw a city like New Orleans and the Gulf Coast more broadly, but the city of New Orleans devastated the way it was, keep in mind a couple of things. What I pointed out in that video you're talking about, which was a speech from 07 actually at, at Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts, um, was in that moment where everybody was blaming black people in New Orleans for not getting out, everybody was trying to make it about them, everybody was trying to make it, you know, instead of instead of putting blame where it belonged, which was 
on the Corps of Engineers that did not build the levees sufficient to, con- to withstand a Category 3 storm because the Corps had been diverting money, as had the city, as had the state, as had the federal government, diverting money from levee construction and repair so that they could build off-ramps on the interstate to get folks to casino boats out on Lake Pontchartrain. So they had been diverting resources into more profitable things rather than protecting people. The irony of that was that the two hardest hit communities in the New Orleans area when Katrina came ashore after the levees broke, because the hurricane itself wasn't the problem. The problem was the levees were not strong enough to withstand the overtopping of the lake waters. And the two hardest hit communities were the Lower Ninth Ward in Orleans Parish, which is overwhelmingly black and overwhelmingly poor, uh, working class, I should say. And, And then right across the road, from from Lower Ninth is this the parish line and it's in it's St. Bernard Parish in a, a community called Chalmette. And these were two of the hardest hit areas. So, uh, one of the nursing homes over in Chalmette, overwhelmingly white folks had dozens of people die, didn't get them out, didn't know that was going to happen. They weren't prepared. The, 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 the St. Bernard Parish, the whole parish was, was, was devastated, as was the Lower Ninth Ward. And the irony of that is that if you look at who the people in the Lower Ninth were, mostly black, and the people in St. Bernard, overwhelmingly white, I think it was 93% in each direction. So Lower Ninth Ward, 93% black, St. Bernard Parish and Chalmette, 93% white. And the folks in St. Bernard, right across the street from the Lower Ninth Ward, if you ask them before Katrina came ashore, what are they afraid of? And who do they fear the most? And what's the problem in the greater New Orleans area? They would have pointed across the road at the Lower Ninth Ward. They would have said, those people right there, those black folks, that's who we fear. That's what the problem is, those people. But yet, interestingly, that white community got all of its stuff flooded, all of its stuff jacked, all of its stuff destroyed by a storm that also destroyed those black people. So instead of being afraid of those folks, maybe you should have been afraid of the system and the people running the system that diverted the money in the first place that didn't protect any of y'all. And you should have been marching on Baton Rouge to get the money you needed to protect your community. You should have been marching with black folks on DC to get the, to get their money to help protect the community. But you didn't because you were sitting there blaming these people. And I think this is you know the same sort of situation situation that we see right now where we're starting to see that there is interest convergence with with protecting black life and protecting white life because again if this disease were disproportionately affecting white people we know full well that we would be pulling out all the stops we would we would shut down the economy we would just start writing checks to people rather than trying to figure out how do we get them back to work at 725 an hour or nine dollars an hour or how do we cut their unemployment rather than increase their unemployment or how do you know we don't want to we don't want to give them too much of an incentive not to work if it was white people dying and and white people who were generally healthy and younger and more affluent we would shut down every everything and print money. That's what we would do. We would just print money and send people money in the mail so they could buy their groceries and stay afloat and we would stop all rent and we would stop all mortgage collection. That is what we would do if the victims were those people. Well, here's the irony. Yeah, it may be disproportionately black and brown. So black and Latinx folks are dying at two and a half times the rate of white people, according to the data. But still, numerically, the majority of the deaths are still white people. You still got lots of white folks dying. And these are white folks who, who, in, who we know from the data disproportionately voted for politicians who are, who are dragging their feet right now. We know what the numbers are on who white folks vote for in presidential elections and even Senate races typically and gubernatorial races, as opposed to who black and brown folks vote for. So now I'm wondering, hopefully, are some of these people rethinking their attachment 
to a politic of reactionary right-wing conservatism that isn't even protecting them now. It's not serving them either, right? And this isn't even about Democrat and Republican. There are people who are Republicans who understand the ridiculousness of our government response and are calling out the administration for that. And there are Democrats who aren't doing enough on it. There, there, there are people you know, all across the spectrum on the right or the, or the left who are, who are dropping the ball or who are demanding change. And so it isn't even just as simple as partisan politics, but it's about saying if, you, if your politic is rooted in the idea that inequality is okay and that we should rationalize inequality. So it's okay, you know, if certain people are disproportionately sick, disproportionately poor, disproportionately don't have access to healthcare, well, that's not my problem. Well, it is your problem because when a pandemic hits and it disproportionately starts taking those folks and those are the people that work in your, in your businesses and those are the people that, you know, keep the food on the shelves at the grocery and those are the people who are working in the hospitals and those are the people who are teaching your kids, you need them to be healthy. You, you might be healthy as a horse. You might be in perfect shape. You may have no real risk factors for COVID-19, but you better worry about other people and, and their health because if you don't and you send your children into, because they're gonna wanna make all the schools open, now you send your fifth grader back to school and you need the teacher to be healthy. You need the principal to be healthy. You need their families to be healthy. So this idea that I just gotta take care of me and you take care of you and I don't have to care about you, and, and uh, you know, just everybody should just take care of themselves. We'll just all be rugged individuals. And, and we don't have to worry about the community because that's communism because it sounds like it. You know, community is just like communism. We, no, this is nonsense. This, this thinking is killing people right. as, we, as we sit. We're just fiddling while Rome burns rather than rethinking our attachment to the kind of individualism that says, when I go to Costco, I don't have to wear a mask. What are, what are you? Are you the, you're the mask police? You know, and, and, and that, that's awful. That's tyranny. What are you going to put me in a labor camp? No, fool. I'm trying to keep you from infecting somebody else. And I'm trying to keep others from infecting you. But we have a mentality that says my freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want, to whoever I want, outweighs the community interest. We have to rethink everything in this moment. Should have done it after Katrina. Maybe now we finally will. Wow. Yeah, that's I hope people really heard what you said. And to me, you know, I, ha I hear that sense of superiority and privilege starts to, to blind people into utter ignorance uh, where we all suffer. And I, I think, you know, it's been uttered a couple of times on here, Tim. I, I think you got the title. to. Well, I know you have a new book coming out or if not it's recently come out or it's soon to be coming out. But I think you have your next title already. And that's uh. Tim Wise, they don't love you either. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that that won't be the title, but <laughs> but I do have. Uh, I, yeah, I am going to work on a book about this because I, I think the thing that I, I hope people will understand. You know, we have this uprising right now, and it's great, and I hope it is sustained. What I do know, though is that for white people to stay in the fight, because black and brown folks are going to stay in it because their lives are on the line. So I think particularly young black and brown folks, they're not going anywhere. They're going to stay out there in the streets. They're going to stay on the beat. They're going to do the work, right? But for white folks to step up in this moment as, you know, in, in solidarity with black and brown voices, we're going to have to get very clear on what our motivation is. If our motivation is shame and guilt, that's not going to last. 
that is not going to work and it is not going to help anybody because after a while, if you're feeling shame and guilt about white supremacy and shame and guilt about your privilege and shame and guilt about the fact that you didn't know how bad it was until you saw the George Floyd video, then eventually your brain is going to want to be protected from shame and guilt. That's how shame works, right? When we, when we feel shame, our goal is to, is to stop feeling shame. So we'll do anything to stop feeling shame. And the easiest way is just to turn around and walk the other way, right? So mm -hmm. I don't think that shame and guilt are going to be long lasting uh, reasons. And to be honest with you, I don't think moral revulsion is going to be enough either. I, I don't think black and brown people have the luxury of waiting around for white folks to feel sufficient moral revulsion at white supremacy as to join the struggle. They've been waiting for 400 years for that. I feel like moral revulsion will get certain people in the streets because they'll see what's going on and they'll just be so horribly offended that that'll be enough. But I think for the vast majority of white people, it's going to take more. And what I think it's going to take is a recognition that this thing can kill all of us white people are not the targets of it we're the collateral damage of it but it can take you out as well and when you endorse this mentality it does pose a risk to you and so we have for the one of very few times right now in american history what Derek bell the late great legal scholar and one of the founders of critical legal theory and critical race theory more broadly called interest convergence the idea that for you know his idea was Every step forward in America toward black liberation has only happened. It didn't happen because white folks grew a conscience all of a sudden and, and turned on the history of white supremacy. It wasn't that white folks suddenly woke up and said, oh, my God, I can't believe we've been doing this to these people for hundreds of years. It was that white folks realized, oh, my God, we have an interest in changing this thing, too. And on the one hand, I know people don't like hearing that because they they think that sounds so self-interested and like what's in it for me. But look, we live in a society that tells us every single day, if you have an advantage, you're supposed to add to it, not give it away. We, we live in a society that tells people to take advantage of their edge. So if you want to change that society, which I would too, you still got to at least recognize that's where we are right now. And if that's where we are right now, we have to make it clear to white folks that 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 all of our lives are at risk, that our, that our country as a whole is at risk right now. Maybe once we get white folks in the door of this movement, on the basis of interest convergence, then we can start talking about morality and ethics. But I just don't, I don't trust putting all my money on the horse called white ethics. Like I just don't, I don't, I, right. I've been around long enough to know that I just think there's too much reason that white folks won't stick with that battle. That's not to say white people can't be moral people. I, obviously, I think most people are moral people trying to live a moral and decent life, but, but the system encourages us to just go along. And I think only when we see that the system endangers us too in a different way and not as directly, but us too, that we are going to actually stay in the fight like our lives depend on it because they do. So with, with our symposium each year, we have about 800 to 1,000 individuals who attend. And many of the individuals, they're from the social services, social work field. I mean, there's a, a conglomerate of several different areas of professionalism and expertise, clinicians, LPCs, psychiatrists, psychologists. Yeah. For you, what is the importance of anti-racism work as it relates to the mental health and social work fields? Well, I think oh, I'll, I'll speak about this from personal experience as well. As someone who is in therapy and knows what makes therapy effective in a generic sense, one of the things that I have come to understand, right, the most basic thing about therapy is that when you're dealing with trauma, you have to have a clinician 
who is not only trained to recognize the various types of trauma, but is sensitive to the way that those traumas have affected you personally and the way that those traumas connect to the traumas of the larger community from which you come. So, for instance, if I am uh, going to seek trauma as someone who, let's say I had been a, a sexual abuse victim, I, I fortunately was not. But if I had been, I would need someone who understood the specific trauma created by child sexual abuse and understood the, the way that that works, not only for me as an individual, but more broadly, as someone who had a very toxic relationship with my father, I need, and luckily I have a therapist who understands these issues, particularly between boys and their fathers and some of the, some of the toxicity that can exist when you're raised in a really, you know, sort of emotionally abusive um, environment by another male and you're, and, and, and you're trying to be a healthy, fully formed man yourself and a father and a husband. Uh, that really helped me. So here we have a situation where if you're going to, if you're going to, provide therapeutic assistance of any kind, any kind of clinical assistance to a person who's been traumatized by racial domination and subordination, by racism at the macro or micro level, at the systemic or the personal level, how is it that you can get to have that job and never have to be trained on the specific ways in which racism traumatizes the black and brown body? How is that possible? How is it that you can become a clinician and not ever have to have taken a class, because you can do this, and never have to have taken a class on how privilege affects the body and how mentalities of entitlement affect one's outlook on life and affect one's experience with trauma? Because see, I would argue one of the things that is often traumatizing for white people that I don't think a lot of clinicians understand is if I have been led to believe all my life that I'm in charge of, of myself and I'm in control and I, you know, I, I've got it all under control. And then my life spirals out of control. Not only is that traumatizing in general, and I need some help for that, but especially if I've been led to believe that I was deserving, especially if I was led to believe that I was entitled to a good life and success. Now I got to deal with the disconnect between what y'all told me y'all was going to have and what I actually ended up with. I think a lot of clinicians know how to deal with people who have, who have never had expectations and have been beaten down by the larger society and told that they were worthless a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of therapy rest on the idea that young people learn that they're or come to think that they're worthless and they blame themselves for the abuse they experience. That's a big piece of it. But also, what if you were somebody that was promised the moon your whole life that was told the world is your oyster, you can have anything if you work hard, and then you go out there and you find out, hey, you know, real life is not always that way. I think there's a real piece of therapy that needs to associate with the damages of privilege too. But I don't think most people have that piece. I don't think they're required to have that piece. I don't think they're required to think about how racism traumatizes its targets. And until we, we, we have that piece and we understand the way that intergenerational trauma is transmitted, I think two things will be true. One is that, that people who need that help will not get it because they don't trust the clinicians. And the clinicians who are trying to give it will not be as effective as they otherwise could have been because they don't understand what it is they're missing. And they're, and they're engaging every one of their clients or their patients as a generic client or patient straight out the DSM-4, right? Mm -hmm. So, or, or now I guess we're at DSM-5 or whatever we're at, but, but you know what I mean? Like there's a, 
it's like, oh, well, I learned about people like you in my training. Well, did you? Because the DSM was mostly developed around the experiences of certain types of people. And the people yeah. that it was mostly developed around were not black and brown and they weren't poor and they weren't LGBTQ. And they, you know, and, right. and, and, and so we've got we to gotta adjust our lenses and learn the stuff that we didn't know. Yeah, take well, and even take the lenses out and put in some different ones. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right, so this is my final question, and, and then we'll wrap up here, Tim. What's going to be one of your important takeaway pieces for the audience members? Well, I mean, I've got three objectives for the audience, really. I want them to be able to identify how history and historical memory affects our current events and our experiences with those events and our response to them. I want them to understand, secondly, the psychological and the emotional cost of racial trauma and white supremacy, both to its targets, people of color, but also to its practitioners and relative beneficiaries. I say relative, because like I said, I think there's damage even for us. So I want us to understand the cost of that, even to the people who benefit from it in relative terms. And then finally, to develop strategies to overcome the effects of racial trauma and racial injustice. So it's really about identifying the role of history, identifying the emotional and psychological impact, and identifying the strategies for overcoming trauma. Wow, can't wait for that, Tim. Uh, great job, thank you so much for being our guest here on the Mental Health Download. And again, looking forward to hearing your keynote presentation at the Zero Mental Health Symposium. To our audience members, please be sure to register today at zerosymposium.org. Tim, you have a great day. Enjoy, man, and we'll see you here in a few months. That sounds good. I'll see you then.